And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Good morning, West Bowles. How are you? I'm good, thank you. In our current series in Exodus, if you've been here, you know. If you're just visiting, you're about to know. We've been looking at God making his case, making his case to his people, the Israelites, to choose him to be their God. God making his case that he and he alone is worthy of their love, all their love, showing and revealing to the Israelites then and to us again that our God is a God that inspires his people to love him with all their heart and all their soul and all their might, and a God that inspires his people to love others as themselves, even as God loves them all. And so it was two weeks ago that we left the Israelites singing the song of Moses on the eastern shore of the Sea of Reeds, the Red Sea, we say, where we saw the final mighty action of God in freeing Israel from Egypt. And then last week... We heard from Annika and Kevin and learned that even when God finally gets through to us and frees us from whatever oppresses us, even after there is that Red Sea moment in our lives where we come to know God as Lord and give Him all our love, even after all of that, we learned there is still work to be done. Israel was free of Egypt, but they were, at heart, still slaves and struggling with slavery and that slave mentality and what it means to be a slave. And they needed to learn how to be free with this new freedom that God had won for them at the Red Sea. And my friends, learning how to be free is something that is very, very difficult to do. Even when we find the Lord and call Him our God, those former struggles with sin that we had, much of it generational, the Bible tells us, that seeks to push through. Those things are still there, in the background at least, lurking and luring and tempting us back to them, to place us back under their control, serving them, rather than learning how to serve and be free and grow in God. And God knew this about Israel. And he knows this about us. After all, he made us, so he knows. And in Exodus, we read that God did not lead his people out of Egypt on the short road to the promised land. Instead, he took them along a much longer road into and through the desert. Now, why did God take the long road to the promised land? Why did he take that road deep into the desert? Why not take the short road? Well, the Bible tells us the short road went through the land of the Philistines, and God tells us his concern with that shorter road. He says, if my people face war, 
they might change their minds and return to Egypt. A better, more literal translation of the Hebrew is this. They might have a change of heart and return to Egypt. In other words, God is concerned that His people, even though they are now free, singing the song of Moses and calling Him God, His concern persists that they'll want to go back to their well-known, well-traveled way of bondage and slavery. They are still slaves at heart. And so God leads His people along that much longer road into the desert. And the reason He takes them there is something I'm going to call this morning desert training. God often takes His people into the desert, into a place, that's hard, so they can learn to rely on Him and Him alone, where they can learn how to be free of anything and everything else from before and serve only and rely only on Him. Now, many of you know Israel's story on the way to the Promised Land. They ended up in desert training for 40 years. And because of this, the prophets and the rest of the Bible develop a biblically pervasive metaphor for what life is like. Because Israel was really born in the desert as a free nation. That's where God's people learned how to be free under God. That was their life. And because of that, Scripture often pictures life as a desert. Like a desert, life is beautiful, majestic even, adventurous and breathtaking. But also like a desert, it's often tedious and hot and rugged and dry and difficult and very, very dangerous, even lethal. And so desert in Scripture is often a picture for what life is like. Life is like a desert. Now, I'm wondering this morning... Does that biblical metaphor, life is like a desert, does that picture resonate with anyone here today? How many of you, if someone asked you this morning, would say, yeah, I have experienced, in fact, right now I am experiencing desert in my life in some way. I won't often ask you to do this, but... By a show of hands, if you would, please. How many of us are all too well acquainted with tough things in life? Ever had a tough time with anything ever in life? Now hold them up high. Like my students at school, I ask them to raise their hand. It's a lot of good that that does me. Hold them up high. Okay, now, with your hands still held up high, take a look around. (laughs) The desert is crowded. (laughs) Who hasn't ever had a hard time at some time with something in life? Well, I've got good news this morning. In fact, it's the most encouraging news, the best news anyone could ever offer to anyone in the desert. 
Because while life is often like a desert, there is an equally pervasive picture in the text, in the Bible, one other huge picture that always goes hand in hand with the picture of life is like a desert. And this overwhelming biblical theme is that while life is like a desert, the desert is where God is. Now I know. Many theologians in the room, wait a minute, God is omnipresent. And you're right. He's everywhere all the time, but nonetheless, the Bible gives us this picture, goes to great lengths to emphasize especially that God is especially in the desert. He is a desert God, much like God's especial presence in the burning bush in the pillar of cloud and fire, in the holy of holies in the tabernacle, and later in the temple. God, like that, is especially in the desert. And I want to emphasize that with you this morning because when we're in the desert, it's very easy to feel that God isn't there with us. And so, listen this morning if you would, to a tiny sampling of the scriptures that emphasizes God in the desert. Here's one from Exodus. The Israelites are in the desert following the miracle at the Red Sea, and they soon begin to grumble because the desert is hard. What will we eat, they ask. And so Moses tells Aaron, say to the entire Israelite community, come before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling." And then while Aaron is relaying this message to the Israelites, the Bible tells us this. They looked toward the desert and there was the glory of the Lord appearing in the cloud. Now, this is emphatically redundant in the text. What do I mean by that? Because Israel is already in the desert. And for the author to tell us they looked toward the desert while they're in the desert makes a startling point. Wow! God is over there, deeper even into the desert along that road? I would have expected to look up and see God's pillar, you know, planted over something like Egypt. He wants to lead me deeper into that desert. That's where he is. We're not going to be left alone in there. Several Psalms pick up on this theme of God with his people in the desert. Psalm 136 sings about a God, our God, who led his people through the desert. He leadeth me indeed. And in other words, he's there with them goes first, in fact. The prophet Isaiah tells us that God's people will neither hunger nor thirst, nor will the desert heat or sun beat upon them, because he who has compassion on them will guide them and lead them beside springs of water. God is there in the desert with his people. And here again, the very first thing God has Jeremiah tell Israel And if you've read Jeremiah, you realize God has Jeremiah tell Israel a lot. But the very first thing that God can't wait to say to Israel, 
to the great prophet of Jeremiah is this. I remember the devotion of your youth, how as a bride you loved me and followed me through the desert, through a land not sown. God is there in the desert with his people. God tells Hosea the prophet to tell the Israelites that because she has decided to follow after other gods, God says, I am now going to allure her. I will lead my people into the desert and speak tenderly to her there. God is there in the desert with his people. And one last one from Revelation 12. John writes that he sees a very pregnant woman crying out in pain as she is about to give birth. And he also sees an enormous red dragon poised to devour the child as soon as he is born. Undoubtedly a reference to Mary pregnant with Jesus and the devil wanting to destroy him. John then sees the child born and watches God snatch the child away from the dragon's jaws. The dragon doesn't get him because God protects the baby. And then, do you remember how God protected the woman who gave birth? John sees her flee into the desert to a place prepared for her there by God. That makes sense to a biblical mind because that's where God is. She flees into the desert to find God where she is cared for out of the dragon's reach. Again, God is there in the desert with his people. That's where God is in the desert. And the desert is dangerous. And the desert is hard. But the desert is also a place of safety because that's where God is with his people. In the desert. God tells the prophet Jeremiah that after their captivity is over, God says through Jeremiah, the people who remain will find favor in the desert. I will come, God says, to give rest to Israel. And so, my friends, in your desert, in our desert, whatever it is, and whenever it is, yesterday, today, or tomorrow, take heart, because God is with us there. And one reason, at least, that God allows desert in our lives is so that we are there with him for desert training. He did this with Israel, and he still does it with us. God does not leave us in our deserts to fend for ourselves. Recently, I saw an ad for the Colorado Lottery. And go figure. I thought, hey, that kind of illustrates something I wanted to talk about today. In fact, it's a reverse illustration, meaning it's not at all like our God. So we tracked down the ad online to share with you today. Remember, our situation in the desert is not at all like the situation you're about to see. Let's watch. Okay. Wait a minute. Uh, you're our only hope. So, I need you to cut the red wire. Miss Peterman, your son is colorblind. Colorblind. The red wire. <gasps> Luck happens. Find yours with the casino scratch. 
Sometimes when we're in the desert, God feels distant. And what's going on in our desert seems random or up to luck. We often feel ill-equipped to deal with it. We often feel alone, and we feel God is a long way away. So not true. God does not leave us colorblind in the desert of life having to randomly choose between a red and green wire we can't even see. And God is not at the distant end of a phone line. He's not at the distant end of a prayer line giving guidance from afar. He's not distant or aloof or far away. He doesn't leave us ill-equipped. Instead, God himself is right there with us, helping us with our desert experiences or dynamite. You know, when we pray... If you're like me, I think many of us picked up somewhere along the way that when we pray, you know, we pray you know, over to God way up there in heaven somewhere distant. And while there's a positive and strength to the metaphor of, of lifting our prayers up to God, one risk we have in that model only at least is you know God dwells in and among us so if he's in and among us what are we doing throwing our our prayers to heaven he's here I think if God answered with an audible voice when we prayed I think we'd be startled that he's right there dear father yes not a long-distance phone call experience, folks. He's here. And because of his infinite love and his empathy for us, you know what? Our desert experiences are really and truly God's desert experiences, too. He's that close. He's that one flesh, which we'll see in a couple of weeks when God talks about being married to us. God is a hands-on, ever-present desert trainer who feels the pain and the struggle and heartache as if it's his own. God is there in our desert with us. And so what is it that God wants to teach us specifically together there in the desert with him? In a word... Many of you know it because we've been studying it. In a word, God wants to teach us Shema. God wants to train us in Shema. God wants to teach us to live Shema. You say, what's a Shema? He wants to teach us how to love him with all our heart and all our soul and with all our might And his training ground for this teaching is very, very often, I think without exception, at least at one point in each and every life, through the experience of desert with him there, with us. 
In her desert training, Israel had at least three key times of testing and training, biblical scholars tell us. When you see that word, by the way, test or testing in scriptures, it's almost also synonymous with or leans much closer to the English word train or training. God tests Abraham's faith In a training sense, a strengthening sense, God wants to see his people's faith in action to help train them to put it into action all the time, no matter the circumstance, no matter the desert. And in Israel's case, some have noted three key times of testing and training. And here's the very telling part, which I think is so cool. These three times of testing and training, they correspond to these three areas of Shema. Loving God with all her heart, her soul, and her mind. Check it out. First, Israel is hungry. The Israelites are worried about food in the desert, and so they complain. And so Israel decides to trust God by following him into the desert. But then they decide not to trust God to satisfy their hunger. They choose to trust, and they choose not to trust at the same time. And because, biblically, the heart is the decision-maker, the Bible describes Israel's choice to trust but not trust a divided heart. Israel must be trained to love God, not with a divided heart, not with some of her heart, but she must be trained to love God with all her heart. Next, Israel is thirsty, and the people force Moses to perform a miracle to save their lives by giving them water. Now, water is a strong symbol for life in the Bible, and so Israel really doesn't trust God to save their lives in the desert. That desire to live, that drive to fight for your own life, to stay alive, that desire deep in us to want to live in the Bible is captured by the Hebrew word nephesh. Say nephesh. We translate that English word nephesh, which stands for the drive to live. We translate that Hebrew word nephesh into the English word soul. And so Israel, in forcing Moses' hand to give them life-giving water, reveals that she can't simply wait on the Lord to save her life, her soul. She must be trained to love God with all her soul. Last, God and Moses express deep concern that once Israel gets into the promised land, their wealth will cause them to forget God. And that, of course, is exactly what happens not too many centuries after Israel settles the promised land. Their wealth, or their might, caused them to forget God. In other words, Israel must be trained to love God with all her might. Heart, soul, and might, God's desert training is how to live Shema. How to love God all the way, come what may. And did you know Jesus was included in God's desert training program? He even included Jesus. Jesus also learned to live Shema in the desert. Matthew provides one example. The devil first tempts Jesus to turn stone into bread. Remember the story? 
And in refusing to do so, Jesus quotes from the passage in Deuteronomy where Israel is complaining about nothing to eat, where Israel is failing to trust God to give them food. Like Israel in her, in her 40 years in desert training, Jesus in this particular 40 days in the desert was learning to love God with all his heart. Only Jesus learned his lesson much better than Israel ever did, perfectly. He succeeded where Israel failed. Next in Matthew 4, the devil tempts Jesus to throw himself down from the pinnacle of the temple to force God to save his life. And in refusing to do so, Jesus again quotes from a passage in Deuteronomy of all places. This time it's the passage where Israel forced Moses to give them water so they would live. And so Jesus is tested, trained in how to love God with all his desire to live. With all his soul, he gives it to God. Last, the devil, the devil offers Jesus the whole world if only he would bow down and worship him. But unlike Israel, Jesus doesn't allow that temptation of all that might all that wealth and power to cause him to forget God. Instead, Jesus trains in the desert to love God with all his might. So Jesus is there too in the desert. He was there just like Israel, just like you and me, just like us, facing the temptation to love God with something less than all his heart and soul and might. The Bible then tells us that throughout his life, the devil returned again and again and again to try and get Jesus to compromise, to hedge, to limit his heart, soul, and might all-out love for God. The book of Hebrews chapter 5 gives us this fascinating insight into Jesus' desert training. Hebrews 5 tells us that Jesus learned obedience that is, he learned to love God with all his all. Jesus, the Bible says, learned obedience from what he suffered, the Bible says. Desert training. And with Easter only two weeks ago, let me complete the story or give you one other angle into it. Jesus' ultimate desert experience, his ultimate desert training of course, was hanging there on that cross, dying there, suffocating there on that cross. And what happened there in that desert training of love and obedience had never happened before and has never happened since and will never happen again. For the first time and for the only time in history, God wasn't with one of his people in their desert. It's the only time that God ever turned completely away from one of his people crying out in the desert and left him there alone to die. And it was his very own son who'd done nothing wrong, who modeled perfectly an all-out love of God with all his heart, all his soul, and all his might. And God did that, 
turned away, even as his son screamed to him, why have you forsaken me? Ignored it. And he did it so that he would never, ever, ever have to turn away from anyone else crying out in the desert. God is there in the desert with his people, training them to live Shema, training us to love God with all our heart, all our soul, and all our might. And that truth, my friends, is so vitally important for us not only to acknowledge, but to embrace while in our deserts in life. Because if we know this, if we know and trust that God is there with us in our desert, and that he is interested in training us to love him all the way and to love others as ourselves, then maybe, just maybe, and assuredly with God's help, we can even in our deserts learn to ask the question, what might God be trying to teach me here? Why did he bring me here with him to this hard place? Why does he want to be here with me? And I know it's a very hard question to ask when we're in desert. When we're in desert, we often can only ask for God to get us out of there. And while that's certainly a proper and important prayer, please, Father, get me out of this hard place. If we only ask that question, it's so easy for us to feel abandoned and alone and to lose sight of God because why isn't he answering? I'm still here. If we only pray that prayer, it's very easy to lose sight of the purpose God has in having us there with him. And so we also need to ask the question, in my opinion, we also need to pray the prayer, Father, why do you have me here with you in this hard place? What do I need to learn here in the desert together with you? Oh, Father, teach me while we're here together in the desert, what I need to know and who I need to become. Father, am I holding back from loving you with all my heart or all my soul or all my might? Is that why we're here? Do I need to be trained further and deeper to become more like Jesus in truly loving others as myself? Is that why we're here together in this desert? God, See, God is stubborn. His love is stubborn. And he will keep us in desert training out of his love for us for as long as it takes for us to learn the lesson he has for us there. And you know, if you want out of the desert, the road out may well be learning the lesson God has for us in the desert, that longer road, 
rather than the short road of just get me out of here. Last week, Annika said something that I've been thinking about ever since. She said that when we're in desert, just because we can't see a way out doesn't mean there is no way out. Just because we can't see a way out doesn't mean there is no way out. So easy, isn't it, to feel hopeless and frustrated when we're in desert, especially when it goes on and on. And to feel... There is no way out when the desert gets especially hot and dry and hard. Now, oddly enough, a second Colorado lottery ad may help illustrate this. As loose as the other one was, as a valuable metaphor illustration, this one's even weaker. But let's watch. Excuse me, you're in my seat. Plenty of seats up top, Chief. Okay. Today's winner, Bowl 87, seat 14. Luck happens. Find yours with the new Denver. There's always a reason that God allows desert to happen. And I know, unlike the movie clip, there's no real-life humor in being sent into the desert or being led by God there. Life's deserts are often a whole lot worse than being bullied out of good seats at a football game. And desert isn't funny. But if you can, allow the illustration to show that even when we can't see the reason God allows desert to happen, God can see it and does see it and knows it. And he has our best interest at heart, always. And even though it doesn't always seem like it or feel like it, God is there in the desert with us working for our ultimate good. Just because we can't see a way out doesn't mean there is no way out. God is there in our deserts with us, And whether or not we stay or leave the desert or how long we're there, what God himself, because he's with us, really is the way out. And even if it feels like you're missing out on your best life now because of your desert experience, my goodness, God would not want us to have a desert experience. Something must be wrong. Seven steps to get out of the desert experience into your best life now. Watch out, because when you flee from desert experience, when you assume God doesn't want you there ever, when you assume he just wants you healthy, wealthy, when you run from desert, you may be running away from God because that's where he is and wants to be with you. It may be that God allowed that desert experience to happen because he wants to be with you there, to comfort you, to hold you, to love you, and to train you. And while it's a tough, tough lesson 
sometimes, if not every time. It is every time for me. And it's one that maxes out every scrape of mature faith that I can muster. And sometimes it's too much for my faith and God needs to give me more. Faith to accept that lesson, let alone embrace it. But here's the truth of the matter. Your best life now is going to include desert training experiences with God. Many of our desert training experiences come in the context of our relationships with other people, don't they? Relationships with other people are often hard work. Have you ever noticed? What's that old joke? Life would be just great if it wasn't for all these other people. There's a church version of it too, right? Church would be great if it wasn't for the people. What we really mean, of course, if it wasn't for the people who aren't just like me. Relationships include desert experiences because they are hard work. Those of us who are married, have you ever noticed the hard work it takes to make a marriage truly great? All around the room, wives are poking their husbands. Hey, wake up, pay attention to this next part. A great marriage takes a lot of work. Jill and I have been married for 20 years. Indeed, praise God. Where does the time go? Right, huh? And even after 20 years, in fact, in some ways, because of all those years, that hard work of making a marriage better and better, well, it's hard. And one thing Jill and I have been focusing on, on this year in particular, as we continue to sharpen each other like iron sharpening iron, wow, that picture the Bible gives us for marriage is truly like a thousand words, isn't it? As we continue to sharpen each other like iron sharpening iron, we're realizing, even after 20 of the most blessed years you can imagine or hope for, that we have to continue to humble ourselves to allow God to shape us, mold us, train us through this other one plus one flush person he's given us on how to love each other in Christ and how to love God with all heart, all soul, and all might. I haven't been able to do it yet with all. Have you? Maybe in winking moments when God gives me that ability because it has to come from God. Jill and I, we are, um, what do you think, honey? Are we pretty good examples of opposites attract in many ways? And while on paper that seems just great, Oh, they'll just complete each other. 
Because where she's weak, he's strong. And where he's weak, she's strong. Oh, they can say to each other each and every morning when they wake up, and each and every night before they go to bed, they can stare in each other's eyes and they can say, You complete me. Oh. And on paper, that sounds great. But then, your opposite comes along to complete you. (laughs) And as his or her, her iron scrapes up against yours to sharpen it, Ouch! And suddenly it's hard. And it becomes so easy to say, um, what on earth do you think you are doing? Or, I thought you loved me just as I am. You know, And as far as completing goes, you're the one who needs to be completed and you need to become exactly like me, you opposite freak. (laughs) Desert training, even in marriage, especially in marriage, We'll see even more of that marriage variety of desert training in the coming weeks where God calls us his bride. It's no different. And when we're being trained to love God and others, when we're being trained to live Shema, whether in the arena of marriage or any arena of life, any desert training ground of hard work, can we humble ourselves enough To ask God the question, what do you want to teach me here, God, in this difficult desert experience together with you? What must I learn? Who must I become? (laughs) Father, help me hear and put into practice and faithfully do what you're trying to say and show me here in the desert with me. God trains his people in the desert. It's where God is. He's there in our deserts with us, loving us, guiding us, strengthening us. So take heart when it gets hard. You are not alone in the deserts of your lives. God is there with you. Ask him next time you're there with him alone in your desert. Hey, Father, why are we here? What would you like me to do? Who do I need to become? Why have you allowed this? Let's pray. Father in heaven, like Israel, and even in many ways, 
boy, we've got a tougher go than Israel and what it means to be a desert people with a desert God who is with us there. We are taught to avoid desert like the plague. And Father, if we do that across the board, you know how many times we miss a desert training experience with you there in the desert. Help us to discern, Father, when it is you want to be there with us and give us the humility and the patience and the courage and the strength to hang in there with you in our desert training for as long as it takes, Father, to what you want for us there. Help us to trust your love. Help us to trust that you indeed leadeth us. Come what may. We love you. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Next week, author Ed Dobson is here. One reason I'm very excited to hear him, well, two actually, I know his son Kent. I had the opportunity to get to know Kent and teach with him a little bit in Israel. I've never met his dad, Ed. But Ed Dobson has an amazing desert training experience to share. You are not going to want to miss it. Would you please stand for this morning's benediction, God's good words, his blessing. Seems especially appropriate that, again, it would be from Deuteronomy and Shema. Hear, O Israel. Hear, O West Bowles Community Church. Hear, O people of God. The Lord your God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And love your neighbor as yourself. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Have a great week. We'll see you again soon. God bless you all.